Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we'll be in Leviticus 18 through 20. Leviticus 18 through 20. So 18, 1 through 20, verse 27. And our topic tonight in our outline that we've been going through, we're on the, we're on the other side of the chiasm, okay? So remember back when we started, we looked at the different sacrifices, and then we looked at the institution of the priesthood, and then we looked at the laws of clean and unclean. We talked about clean and unclean meats and so forth. And then on the Day of Atonement, we talked about uh, the sacrifices on that day and how that centers the whole book of Leviticus, which itself is the center of the Pentateuch, and uh, how that's the center of the law itself, the idea of atonement. We'll get to that uh, also tonight. So on the flip side of this, uh, we're talking about not clean and unclean in a ceremonial sense, but holy and unholy, more about morality and sin and righteousness, uh, and that corresponds to that clean and unclean. Then uh, next week, we'll go back and talk about the priesthood, and then uh, in the weeks following, we'll talk about the closing sections on more sacrifices before we get to the conclusion. So remember a chiasm, and we'll bring that word up again tonight. Chiasm, think of it as bookends. Uh, bookends that sort of symmetrically break down the book in this way to where you have a central point, And then you have all this stuff that surrounds it. So if you look at the whole outline for Leviticus, you see a chiasm that surrounds the central day of atonement. We're going to see another chiasm tonight as we continue to talk about holy and unholy. Matt talked about holy and unholy meats last week and uh, those dietary restrictions for the people of Israel. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, morality in terms of sexuality, the family, and community. So this is what we call the holiness code. Matt started that last week in Leviticus 17, and that goes through Leviticus 20, the holiness code. So what we're on tonight is holiness continued, holiness continued. And what we're going to see here, for the most part, are general laws about, you guessed it, holiness. The holiness code teaches us about holiness, otherness, being distinct being separate as God's people. And there in the middle of the holiness code itself, uh, this idea of being one with God and in relationship with him, surrounding that as a sort of other chiasm, and if you have your study guide, you can see the breakdown they do, uh, surrounding this idea of holiness are these laws about sexual purity. Laws about sexual purity, and we'll look at some of these tonight. But also sort of sandwiched in here is, um, and if you haven't thought it's weird to this point, I mean, maybe this is nothing to you. Uh, Some of this stuff can be confusing. Some of the stuff that is brought up in Leviticus, for instance, 
in chapter 19, verses 26 through 28, we see another commandment, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it, okay? We're, we're used to that by now, and we understand why the blood is so significant to the Hebrews and to God. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edge of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, of course, this has been a proof text for a lot of folks um, about the sinfulness of tattoos, cutting yourselves, and they would apply that to body piercings of any kind. And they say, well, it's right there in the Bible. Well, yeah, it is right here in the book of Leviticus, but it's right alongside of not cutting hair on your temples and not shaving your beard. So we have to understand things in context. And so we see this, and we say, what does he mean by tattoos and cutting your body and rounding your temples and all this stuff that seems so foreign to us? Uh, what does all this have to do with anything? Well, it's important to remember the main point of all of Leviticus. The main point, of course, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that comes right here in chapter 19, verse 2. In the middle of these three chapters we'll cover tonight, 18, 19, and 20. Right there in the middle, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So whatever it is that God is commanding the people to do or not to do, and this applies to everything we've seen thus far. We've seen it time and time again. You shall be holy, you shall be holy. The whole point is that the people of Israel are to be distinct from the other nations around them when they go into the promised land. Now, we don't have all the wherewithal to know why that meant they can't shave their beards or round their temples off. And you know Hasidic Jews to this day. You'll see the Hasidic Jewish men uh, that have the really curly sideburns and the really long beards. They're, they're obeying this law even to this day because they think they have to. Um, th but there's a, there was a purpose a historical, cultural, contextual purpose of why God made these laws for these people for this time. And whatever it had to do with, it had to do with going into this land of Canaan and being different and distinct and separate from the nations around them. Now we're going to see sexual laws that did not have any, they, I mean they had to do with being different from the nations around them, but it wasn't something uh, that just went away. In other words, we don't have to worry about temples and sideburns and beards today because that has nothing to do with the culture around us really anymore. But sexual purity sure does. And so we see the lasting nature of the sexual purity laws and the temporal nature of some of these other laws and customs. Okay, so when someone tells you, uh, you you can't get a tattoo, not that I advise you to get a tattoo, I don't have any tattoos, but if, if someone says you can't get a tattoo because the Bible says not to, you say, where? Well, Leviticus. Well, let's look at Leviticus, shall we? And then remind them they, they also can't shave their beard and cut the hair on their temples. So uh, go that route if you need to. Some of the things can be confusing, but remember the central point. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And furthermore, God's people can know victory over sin. God's people can know and should know victory over sin. So what is at the center of these laws? 
If the center of it is be holy as I am a holy, what then is the center of holiness? Well, this whole section forms another chiasm. That's the word we've been looking at so often in this, in this study, chiasm. Pointing to one central command. And if you have your Bible open, look at Leviticus 19, verse 8. You'll see this central command. Everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity. That's not the right verse. I did the verse wrong. Maybe it's 18.9. Maybe I'm dyslexic. I know I am. We'll figure it out in a minute. I circled it somewhere. Uh, The central command is to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. If anybody sees that while we're going through here, I thought I'd circled it. I circled a bunch of other words. The central command in holiness is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you remember when the Pharisees were asking Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, what is the greatest commandment? Remember? And they're trying to trap Jesus by tricking him into saying that one commandment is greater than the rest. So they're trying to get Jesus to say, well, of course, it's the first one. And then they would say, well, how dare you say it's just the first one? You know, why not idolatry or taking the Lord's name in vain or the Sabbath or honor your father and mother, Jesus? Why wouldn't you say that? You know, they're trying to trick Jesus and trap him into, into, into trapping himself into a, a situation where he's condemned as a false teacher. What does Jesus say the greatest commandment is? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, when he says that, what is he doing except summarizing the whole law? He's summarizing all the commandments. But then he also says this, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So with one statement, he really summarizes the whole law, love God. But then he goes the extra mile and summarizes the entire law, plus some, love God and love your neighbor. And so Jesus says this is all the law boils down to. This is what holiness boils down to. This is what living as God's distinct people boils down to. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Above all, love God. And that's the umbrella under which we have the other command to love your neighbor. So Jesus says this is the center of the law. And at the crux and the center of the law is this idea of holiness. You want to be holy? Love God and love your neighbor. And so that's what this is all about. So all the sexual laws, all the purity laws, everything we're going to see is about love of God and love of neighbor. 1918, not too far off, just a slip of the finger on the keyboard. 1918, love your neighbor as yourself. The first section we're going to cover here in uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 30, is marital integrity. So sexual fidelity and faithfulness within the bounds of of marriage. Um, the laws begin with uh, things that are forbidden, sexual acts that are forbidden. Verse 6 summarizes all we're going to see in these verses. Verse 6 sort of gives you your thesis statement. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And so uh, there you have your kind of foundational statement that's going to be expounded in the rest of this chapter. 
no sexual relations with close family. And the author is going to go on to define what close family means. Or close relatives, close family, close relatives, whatever you want to put on there. So as you look through Leviticus 18, starting in verse 7, uh, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. Uh, verse 8, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Now that would be if he had remarried and it wasn't your mother, okay, stepmom. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. Um, later in verse 10, or your son's daughter. Verse 11, or your father's wife's daughter. Verse 12, or your father's sister. Verse 13, or your mother's sister. Verse 14, your father's brother. Uh, verse 15, uh, uh, your daughter-in-law. Verse 16, your brother's wife. A woman and her daughter in verse 17. Her son's daughter, her daughter's daughter. Verse 18, a woman as a rival wife to her sister. Okay, now you think, why in the world do we need to really go into detail and delineate all these? Well, you know sinful human beings just as much as I know sinful human beings. And you really, it's like a kid that just keeps asking the same, what about, but what about, but what about? So the author of Hebrews, Moses, by the Holy Spirit, just goes ahead by, by the Lord's inspiration and says, let's just go ahead and make sure we're all clear on all the people you can't have sex with. <laughs> let's go through that and let's make it clear for everybody. So there's no question. So at the end of the day, when you fall into one of these things, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for someone to say, oh, but you didn't say. Uh, yeah, God clearly said, and he makes sure that we're very specific on what we're to avoid uh, in terms of sexual sin. These laws go on to uh, define sin, sexual sin, beyond the family. In verses 19 through 23, we move beyond what we call sort of incestuous family relationships sexually, and we go and make sure we cover all the bases. Uh, just look starting in verse 19. Let's read through verse 23 to see this. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, uh, presumably the main hearers being treated as if they are males. They shall not lay with males as you lay with a woman. And you shall not lie with any animal so as to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. So just hold on. I know this is like, oh, what is this? Like Mari Povich show on, uh, in the middle of Leviticus. Uh, but there, there's, a point, there's a point to this. Um, what's covered here is really two categories. Uh, basic adultery, you know, your everyday run-of-the-mill adultery, and, and that which is unnatural, uh, which would also be fornication. I mean, all these are under that sin of fornication, sexual sin, and they're not to be se separated as if, well, adultery and this is this. No, they're all under that umbrella, but these two cover two really separate ideas. Adultery, and, and that starts in verse 19, and it might sound odd for us to say, um, verse 19, you shall not uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. You say, what in the world does that matter? What does it have to do with anything? Well, in terms of someone that might have been thinking that they're going to sneak around and fool around with someone else, and in this day and time, contraceptives being completely unheard of at this point, except for natural methods, they say, 
That would be the optimum time, right, to avoid any sort of shame, any sort of pregnancy. That is really what's being covered here more than some state of uncleanness because of menstruation. Although, if you remember Jared's lecture, his wonderful lecture on, on clean and unclean bodily functions, there was that aspect of blood and death and rot and all that wonderful stuff that reminded us of the fall and sin, and uh, God wanted him to avoid that. But really, verse 19 goes with verse 20. You shall not sec- lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. Okay, so these two verses really just fall into adultery. Do not engage in sexual sin sexual actions outside of your marriage or in conjunction with someone else's marriage. Your neighbor's wife, adultery, all of that is off limits. And then in verses 22 and 23, we cover that which we would call unnatural, which would mean homosexual sex and any sort of bestiality in uh, verse 23. So that which is clearly unnatural. Now, President Obama was uh, famous for, for lecturing us on religion and what we should believe as Christians. And, and he said, if you're going to say homosexuality is wrong, quoting from Leviticus, you also have to, and he went to some of these other laws about shellfish and planting two seeds at the same time and, and all these other various strange laws. And President Obama's wonderful hermeneutic theological outline was this. If you're going to say homosexuality is sin, you've got to say that all these other random things are sin too. But there's a difference, and President Obama probably needs to go to some Bible college or something to learn how to understand and to interpret the Bible. When we looked at those other laws, tattooing yourselves and cutting yourselves, what did it say in in chapter 19, verse 26? You shall not round off your temples. You shall not make cuts on your body for the dead. There's very clearly something specific that the Lord wants his people to avoid about cutting themselves and tattooing themselves and whatever it had to do with their beard and their hair as they went into the other nations. The sexual laws are foundational from creation itself. The sexual laws had nothing to do with the culture at the time. So when God says to Adam and Eve, uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave only to his wife. This is marriage, man, woman. That's the bounds of sexuality. God says that in creation. Okay, that had nothing to do with the people going into the land of Canaan and the nations around them. Furthermore, when you get into the New Testament, you see those exact same sexual laws repeated. Paul and the other apostles and Jesus are very clear that sexual relationships are to be reserved in the bounds of sacred marriage between a man and a woman. And anything outside of those bounds, gender, marriage, and otherwise, is called fornication or adultery. And so when you see something picked up in the Old Testament, repeated in the New Testament, you say, oh, that part still stands. We might be able to eat pork, and I shave my beard, and I cut my temples and all the other wonderful stuff, But these sexual sins are still sexual sins because they're rooted in creation, not culture. So what you'll have people do that are trying to downplay these things, especially in our day, where uh, homosexuality and transgenderism and the whole nine yards is uh, seeking to be normalized, and they know their primary target is uh, traditional Christians, Muslims, Jews, and others that have more traditional Uh, family values and sexual ethics and stuff, they know that's their target audience. So one of the arguments you hear specifically towards Christians is, well, now in that day and time, 
God wanted his people to be separate from the nations around them. But in our day and time, the nations around us understand that that's normal. And so you'll have liberal Christians and others saying, and there's no longer a stigma about homosexuality or transgenderism or anything else. There's no longer a stigma about that. Therefore, they say, it's now okay. There's no longer the stigma associated with it. We're coming out of that, so now it's okay. You should look at that and say, that's not a proper understanding of the scripture, and it's not what the Christian church has taught or believed for 2,000 years. I find it fascinating that people 2,000 years into church history want to come into a Christian church and tell a Christian church what we should believe now. Like, first of all, <laughs> you're not even a Christian. Second of all, I think we can read the Bible and uh, assume for ourselves what God wants us to know as his people. Um, so when you look at these laws, read some commentaries, read something, understand why God is putting these things in place. Ask yourself, do I see this again in the New Testament? And if you see it again in the New Testament, especially in the writings of the apostles, to churches, you say, ah, this thing is still very, very important. We might be able to wear polyester and eat bacon and cook our meat in the same water and milk and all these other strange laws that Le- Le- Leviticus had, but Paul and Peter and the rest are very clear. This is what sexuality is supposed to be, and this is adultery and fornication. So uh, do your studies on those things. Be prepared for those arguments from the world around us. The central prohibition here, did you notice it? Look again in verses 19 through 23. You almost have another little chiasm here, don't you? You got this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse, and right there in the middle is another verse that kind of stands out. Look at those verses again, 19 through 23. You tell me what you see is central and really doesn't fit with the others. Anybody? Yeah, don't offer your children to Molech. Now, where did that come from? Right, you got adultery and menstrual cycles and homosexuality and bestiality and oh, in the middle. And by the way, don't offer your children to Molech. Well, it, it lets you know that this repeated prohibition against Molech worship, God is telling the people something specific about what the Canaanites do And you are not to be like that. This is what they do. Don't act like that. And don't do that. Uh, So right there in the middle of this is this reminder. Oh, and by the way, while you're thinking about sexuality and reproduction and children, all of this, God says, really falls into paganism and ungodliness and unholiness. And that's what this Molech worship is about. We also have this weird uh, thing in uh, verses 6 and verse 27 against what we would call, and this, I'm sorry, this is chapter 19, uh, necromancy, this warning against necromancy. Anybody know what necromancy is? Yeah, trying to, trying to commune with the dead or talk to... Uh, dead people it would involve some sort of witchcraft you think about Saul uh, trying to talk to uh, Samuel and he goes to the witch 
the witch at Endor, which sounds very Star Wars-like, but it's, it's, right, there. it's right there in the Bible, necromancy. Uh, it's interesting that these things are coupled here, and we see them. Um, man, my verses were just messed up, weren't they? I'm looking at 18.6. In 1827, hmm, it's actually verse, uh, chapter 20, there you go. Chapter 20, oh, it does, doesn't it? Maybe if I read my own paper. Chapter 20, verse 6, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, <laughs> I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. I will cut him off from among his people. And then later in verse 27, it ends with, A man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, in case you forgot how you stone people, and their blood shall be upon them. So as we move from marital integrity to communal or community integrity, we see this sort of outflowing. The ethics... And the holiness in the home and personally and with your family overflows into the community. And it was rooted right there in the sexual laws also. You know, as you're not committing adultery and as you're not fornicating in these different ways, also don't worship false gods like Molech. And then the, the Lord goes on to expound upon that, unfolding it in this next section about Molech worship and necromancy. Uh, don't do those things. So why does God target these things specifically? Why does God target these things specifically? Look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, and you shall not walk, look at this, in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Uh, there we see that. What's that? Oh, okay. I thought my music was left on or something. Everybody hears that, right? I'm not crazy. <laughs> like, what's happening? I must be teaching the right thing, unless it's a demon. All right, so why does God target these things specifically? What does he say in verse 23? This is the reason I'm doing this. Because the nation whom I'm driving out before you did these things, and they are detestable to me. Now, God in his justice has handed that nation over to judgment. God has every right to, to tell this the Canaanite people, you're getting out of here because you're sinners. Now, here's the thing. What would Israel do if they came into Canaan and God wasn't gracious enough to tell them what to do and what not to do? Don't you think they'd, they'd be in the same boat as the Canaanites? Absolutely they would be in the, They're no better off. And we see that again and again in Israel's history anyway. But God is gracious to his chosen people and he shows justice to the rest. To the rest, he leaves in their sin. He leaves in their ignorance. He has no need, no obligation to reveal anything to them. But to his people, he says, now, listen, this is what they do, and you're not to behave that way. 
And so whatever you see in these previous chapters, you just keep coming back to that. And we, we, we keep seeing that pattern, don't we? Don't do what they do. Don't do what they do. You're distinct. You're separate. You're holy. You're my people. I'm your God. Don't mix in with them through their customs and their pagan idolatry and their sexual uh, sins. So God targets these things specifically because he says they do them and you are not to do them. You're to be holy because you're my people. But this goes beyond just uh, sexuality laws. This is about family holiness. This is about family holiness. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, didn't we start, or not back, <laughs> in the future when Israel is about to go into the promised land, God tells them in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to say, And you are to teach these things to your children and to your children's children. When you stand up, when you sit down, when you go out, when you go to your job, when you come home, teach these things to them. You say, what things? Well, by the time you get to Deuteronomy, everything that came before it, what we would call Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all that stuff that came before, Moses says, teach that to your children. The Holy Spirit says, teach this to your children. So this, this flows again from our personal lives into our homes and into our families and into our community. This idea of holiness is about integrity in our life, how we live, but also in our worship. That's why you see this sort of seamless transition from sexual sins and morality to warning, warnings against necromancy and idolatry and all these bizarre things that defined these pagan nations that surrounded Israel. And God says your integrity is going to be bound up in the fact that you don't do what they do and you obey what I've told you to do. And that will apply to you in your personal life, your home life, your family life, your public life, and most importantly, your life of worship before me. So this is for you to respond to here. I think we can easily think of some of these things. How do we see challenges such as these in our day? We look at these sins and we think, man, this is so bizarre. But at the other end of the spectrum, is it really all that bizarre? Do we live in all that different a world than the world of Israel and the Canaanites? Can you think of any modern versions of child sacrifice? Abuse, absolutely. Abortion, bingo. Uh, how about sex trafficking, minors and children, prostitution, forced prostitution? We see this all over our, our world, and sadly right here in America, where I don't know what the most recent number was, but 60 million plus babies, right? Legally aborted in our nation, our nation alone since 1973. So we see Molech, and if you don't know who Molech is, there's a picture there, uh, artist rendering, of course. Uh, he was some sort of a Canaanite god that many believed uh, was either lit on fire or was heated up from the inside, and children, young children, babies, were consumed alive on the altar of Molech or placed into burning hot hands of the god Molech, this fertility god of, of rain and all this, all this stuff. It was awful, awful barbaric things. And some of your versions might have that defined there when it talks about the worship of Molech. You might see an addition, 
cause their children to pass through the fire. That's that, that live child sacrifice on behalf of the Canaanites. Of course we see this in our day through the evils of abortion and uh, child prostitution and abuse. How about necromancy? I mean, yeah, we, we have psychics and mediums and people that talk to the dead. And, all, and here's the thing. Christians get caught up in this stuff sometimes. That's very frustrating for a pastor <laughs> to see Christians uh, get caught up in this stuff. Like, Jessica and I were talking about this recently. There's... There's, there's some sort of disconnect in, in, the, in believers' minds, it seems, between what we know is true and what we have in the scriptures and what comes out of our mouths at times. And you hear people talk about psychics and mediums and stuff and Christians talking about this stuff. We see it all over the place in the New Age movement. Uh, New Age, which includes psychics and mediums and, and the whole nine yards. So can you think of any other instances or versions of necromancy new age thought in our day oh yeah loved ones becoming angels yeah that's one that's a very common thought and it's wrong right yeah it doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah that's true uh, there's lots of confusion on death and dying even even for christians and some of that might, might move into necromancy. Butterflies, cardinals. I've heard red cardinals. That's, yeah. Feathers, which I think is funny that I've heard a lot about feathers in Texas uh, since I've been here. I, I'd never heard that before. And I think it's because you have so many pigeons. And so much wind that there are literally feathers everywhere. That I've just never, I've never lived anywhere where you just walk outside, there's feathers just everywhere, dead birds and, and things. So it's, it's interesting. I can see how that could crop up here. I, what about, listen and, and follow me here. What about um, the prosperity gospel and versions of that sort of quote-unquote Christianity? And, and hear what I'm saying on this. What is the prosperity gospel except... The power of positive thinking, right? The prosperity gospel says you are sick because you think sick, right? You are poor because you think poor. And if you would just say to your wallet, wallet, you are so big and full of money, and you had faith and claimed it in Jesus' name, it would be there for you. Well, what is that except New Age pagan thought that has crept into the church? Name it, claim it, uh, power of positive, the law of attraction, uh, that, huh? What? Vision boards. I don't know what that is. It sounds awful. Oh, you want something, and so you had to put it up there. In a superstitious way, that if you claim this and believe it hard enough, it'll happen for you. Yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the ways this has seeped into the Christian church, and you can get mad at me if you want, and it's okay. I can take it. Um, there was a book a couple years back called uh, by a guy named, oh, what was his first name? Last name was Batterson, B-A-T-T. And the book was called the, uh, Mark, oh, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The Circle Maker, The Circle Maker. And it was a Christian book. It was put out there in Christian bookstores. I, Lifeway probably sold it for all I know. And... Um, probably did and and the whole thing was this guy and it was um, 
extra biblical character in what we call the Apocrypha or some old Jewish, not the Apocrypha, some old Jewish literature from, from the time of the Bible. And the, the man in the story, this Jewish man, uh, it wasn't in the Bible. Uh, there was no rain. He wanted rain so bad that he stood and he drew a circle around himself and he said, I'm not going to leave this, told the Lord, I'm not going to leave this circle until you make it rain. And so the whole point of this book is to, I think literally, right, draw circles, vision board type stuff, around things that you need from God. And to do this sort of, uh, I can see it on my vision board, to draw circles around things and to, to keep praying and to keep demanding and to keep believing until you get that from God. So you see this kind of stuff seeping into the Christian church because, quite honestly, a lot of Christians don't have discernment enough to look at something and say, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I don't think that's biblical, and I'm not going to buy into that. But we need to have that kind of mind, and I could go on, but I'm going to stop. How about adultery? I mean, do we really need to go into adultery and fornication in the church uh, or in our modern, not even in the church, but in our modern times? I mean, it's all around us. Um, in terms of homosexuality. And, you know, one of the things that Christians have always said about uh, sexual sin, especially homosexuality, is, is once you move that line uh, mentally, and once the culture and the society around you moves the line, and here's what I mean by that. Well, who's to say that normal, it, normal sex is between a man and a woman. Who's to say that? Oh, the Bible said that, but that's old-fashioned. We're beyond that. So what do they do? They move the line. Now what does normal sex include? It includes between a man and a woman, man and a man, woman and woman, groups, who knows what else? But here's the thing that nobody's thinking, I guess a lot of people are thinking about it, but they'll deny it until they're blue in the face. But this is, this is going to happen. Once you move the line, how far will the line move? How far will the line move? Because you know as well as I do that once a, a, small, a small minority of a group thinks that they have a right to behave and act in a certain way and not to be discriminated because of it, sooner or later the culture is going to capitulate to them. How long will it be until, as shocking as it sounds, pedophilia, bestiality, and anything else you can imagine is just there. Because once you start saying we can't draw lines, the question becomes, well, where does the line stop? And someone says, well, this is just how I feel naturally. That's my natural attraction. Where does that argument stop about the person attracted to this or to that? And you see how culture just always moves that line. And so we see the same stuff in our day, in our society, as we did in those days. And we need these same laws uh, in our minds of God's desire for human sexuality and marriage and gender. So we did chapter 18 and uh, chapter 20. There in the middle is the central call to be holy. In the middle of these sexual and ethical laws is the central call, be holy. Now, I think you've heard me talk about this enough to know where I'm going to go with this. This involves both fostering a holy culture 
So if you look at chapter 19, and we're not going to read all those verses, but just for your, your later uh, study, if you were to look there in uh, chapter 19, at the first 18 verses, you see how God wants the people to cultivate a holy culture. Not just in what they avoid and what they don't do, but in what they cultivate for themselves. Not just not to be like the Canaanites, but how does God want us to live? But it also involves avoiding Canaan's unholy culture. So God says, this is what I want you to do and what I don't want you to do. And then on the other hand, this is what these people do that I want you not to do. And they both go hand in hand. Fostering and cultivating what God wants us to do and not to do in holiness and obedience. And also looking at the sinful world around us and not falling into those patterns of sin and unrighteousness. Now this popped up in a verse in chapter 18 too. Uh, so you can go back and count those for yourself. But just in chapter 19, uh, chapter 19 alone, there are 15 times this phrase, this rhythm, the repeated rhythm of this section pops up. I am the Lord your God. It's in verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, verse 18, verse 25, verse 28, verse 30, verse 31, 32, 34, 36, and 37. This whole middle section, and again, you see it in chapter 18 and chapter 20, but it is this constant barrage, I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God. What do you think the significance of that is? And we see these rhythms throughout Leviticus, don't we? I think Matt went over one last week and we saw them in the sacrifices, these repeated lines that tell us this is what this is about. God is reminding his people who they are and whose they are. And so as you go into this nation surrounded by pagan idol worshipers, you need to remember, I, Yahweh, am your God. Not Moloch, Molech, however you pronounce it. Not any of their gods, any of their idols. I, Yahweh, alone am your God. And isn't that the focal point of holiness? Isn't that what it means to be holy, to live with integrity as God's people? We belong to him. He is our God. We do not belong to another. That is the center of holiness. And so as the people hear these commands from God, the constant reminder, this is who you are. This is who I am to you. This is who you are. I'm your God. You're my people. Obey me and don't fall into the sins of these cultures around you. All right, so let's talk about the big picture as we wrap up tonight. The big picture Sexual purity is love for God and love for one's neighbor. It's love for God because we obey what he's told us to do and not to do. When it comes to sexuality, marriage, to love God in that is to obey what he has commanded concerning love and marriage, gender, and sexuality. It's why when people tell you, well, Jesus never talked about marriage and homosexuality, you say, oh, yes, he did, because he quoted Genesis 2 verbatim when he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Jesus talked very much about sexuality 
and marriage and all the rest. So loving God means obeying God. And in this realm, we're talking about sexual purity. And there's the obvious connection to loving one's neighbor in terms of uh, not taking one's neighbor for yourself or violating other people in a sexual way. That's obviously love for one's neighbor. This, love for God and love for neighbor, again, is the center of the law and is the definition of holiness. This is what it means to obey God. Love God, love your neighbor. Before the fall, God created man. He said, it is good, it is very good, it's all good. We see that man was created to live in perfect communion with God. Uh, I think this too would be the idea of holiness. Perfect relationship, perfect fellowship, perfect communion with God. He made us, he is our God, we belong to him as his creation. There's holiness, you're mine. You don't belong to yourself, you don't belong to other things, you belong to me. I'm your God. So that's how we were created. That was God's purpose in creating mankind, to be holy and in perfect communion with him. Now, you know this. I don't need to tell you this tonight, I don't think. But sin has broken this relationship and rendered it impossible on our own. We don't have to turn here, but you know the, the indictment that Paul gives us in Romans 3, 10 through 19. It includes uh, such phrases as no one is righteous, no one does good, no one seeks for God. They've all become pro profitless. They are, uh, their tongues are uh, like the venom of snakes and their throats are open graves and they've all turned aside. And Paul just goes on and on and on about the depravity and the sinfulness of man showing this broken relationship, not just between us and God, but between us and our neighbor. And so that which God created us for, perfect communion with him and perfect communion with each other, is broken because of sin to the point where we hate God and in correlation to that, apart from Christ, we hate our neighbor. But in all of this, we have to set this passage and really all of the law in orbit around the day of atonement. Remember that which comes in the center of Leviticus, which itself is the center of the Pentateuch, the center of the whole law is the day of atonement. So as we think about sin and unrighteousness and holiness and what God wants from us and what God demands from us, be holy as I am holy, we have to put it in context and in reference to that central idea of atonement. God knows, God knows that we are going to mess up. He knows that there is going to be sin and sinfulness. And there in the middle of all of it, he provides atonement. He provides a way for those sins to be forgiven, those sins to be blotted out, for people to be made clean, for people to be made whole. So as you read Leviticus and you read all around the law that, that's all around Leviticus, remember there in the center is atonement, forgiveness, and redemption through the shedding of blood. Okay, So you, you can get bogged down in the laws. You can get bogged down in the do's and the do nots. And if you're not careful, 
you can begin to think that's what the law is about. Well, the law is about do and do not. And in a sense, it is. But it is in that it points beyond itself. It points to the need for atonement. And Paul will say later in Galatians that the law was like a schoolmaster, a teacher that was pointing us beyond itself to the center not just atonement through the blood of bulls and goats, but as Peter says, what? Through the precious blood of Christ. So there at the center is the idea of atonement. So we're able to see then that holiness is not a constraining list of rules, but an invitation to relationship with God. So often I think we, we read Leviticus and we read the law and maybe even as Christians we read the New Testament and we think we, we, see, we see the commands do this or don't do that and we somehow think that God is some sort of malicious person that doesn't want us to know him and has given us all these rules to follow to make sure that we never know him. And that's not God's heart at all. The law was never meant to be this stepladder by which we come to God where the law is supposed to be this ladder that's cut out from underneath us to point us to our need of the gospel in Christ. And then now as Christians, through faith in Christ, made righteous not through the law, but through Jesus, filled with his Holy Spirit, we have the law, not in order again to somehow make it up to God, but now we know how to live, and we have the Spirit that empowers us to live in obedience to God and in love with God. So holiness for the Christian, and even for the people then, was not just a constraining list of rules, but it was an invitation to relationship. What it truly meant to be made in the image and the likeness of God. What God intended for us from the beginning, from creation itself, what he intended. And when he said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. I'm not going to say it's all of it, but at least part of it is here. In obedience and love and living as God would want us to live. Being reflections of him to the world around us. Which was why Israel was called to be holy in the first place. Not so as to be so much better than the nations around them. So as to be prideful and arrogant. But what? To shine as a light to those nations. And a reflection of their God. So that they might come out of their idolatry and turn to the one true and living God. This whole thing is an invitation from God invited and initiated by him does anybody remember without looking how the book of Leviticus starts it's the first phrase what somebody said it yeah good job and he called and the Lord called Moses you see that from the very beginning, the whole thing is not about rules and regulations and, and constraints. It is an invitation from God, by God, to Moses and to the people. This is how you come into relationship with me. When we come into the New Testament, we see that Jesus comes as a man. He comes as a man, Paul says in Galatians, under the law to fulfill the law for us and to provide atonement. What all those 
bulls and goats and doves and lambs just pointed to, Jesus, remember, is the reality. What the tabernacle and the priesthood and all the festivals only pointed to as a shadow, Jesus comes as the reality. You just dumped that baby outside somewhere? You offered him to Molech, didn't you? I know you did. I know you did. I didn't want to say anything. Jesus Jesus comes as a man to fulfill the law and to provide atonement. Uh, He as a sinless God-man is able to provide atonement uh, in the way that those animals never could. Where we had wandered from God, Jesus reconciled us to God. Where we had strayed and gone away from God in, in hatred towards him and towards our neighbor, Peter says that Christ also suffered once that he might do what? Bring us to God. The purpose and the suffering of the sinless Savior was that sinners like us, wanderers, like sheep who had gone astray, Paul said, and Isaiah said, could be brought back into that right relationship with God. True love of God, true love of neighbor filled with his spirit, made his children, his sons and daughters. And we would be tempted to say, well, that's it, right? Christians, we we have faith in God, our sins are forgiven, and the law doesn't matter anymore. Is that that the way you think about the law? It doesn't matter anymore. No. The law comes into the life of a Christian no longer as a means to try and earn favor with God. But now that we have been declared righteous apart from the law through faith in Christ, what does the law now do for us? It helps us know how to obey God by what? By being like Christ. We are to be like him now in holiness so that we will be like him then. And as we close, I will read those first three verses from 1 John chapter 3. Called to be God's people, we are declared holy through faith in Christ. Now by the Holy Spirit, we are to strive for holiness. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now look, there's there's the reason you belong to Christ. That's the reason you belong to God, is because God has, by grace, made you a child of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are His children now. Obey Him now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Okay, so you have gospel. You have been called to be God's people by faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. It's not something you earn. It's something he gives by grace. You are God's children. He says we are God's children. But there's more coming. On that day when we see Jesus, we will be made like him. 
because we will see him as he is. Verse 3 is important. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's never the call of the Christian to sit back and to do nothing as if there's nothing to obey, nothing to do, nothing to worry about now that we're Christians. No, the whole point of being made God's children, filled with his spirit by faith alone, is now we have the privilege of serving him and loving him and worshiping him and obeying him. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The book of Leviticus and really all the law has something to say to us believers. We are like them, again, 1 Peter, in a world that is not our home. We're in a, the midst of a pagan society all around us. And God says, now that you belong to me by faith, what ought you to do? Well, you ought to live like Jesus lived. You ought to be holy. And how can we be holy except by learning to obey what God has told us to obey? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, which comes now to teach us and to apply all these things to us. And we ask that as we read your word and understand these, these laws and customs and things that might seem very foreign to us, that you would help us to see your heart in it all, your heart for your people, to obey you, to be like you, to love you, your heart for your New Testament people, filled with your Holy Spirit, to belong to you, to be holy to you, to be separate to you, to be devoted to you. Help us to do that by your Holy Spirit. Enable us to obey you, enable us to worship you, enable us to honor you with our lives. Cause us to be more and more like Jesus and help us to look forward to that day when we will be like him because we will finally see him as he is. We ask all these things and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.